0: Good morning and welcome to Lake Forest Davidson. My name is Gray Seegers and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. This morning we are starting a new series called Asking for a Friend. And for four weeks we're going to be looking at four questions that we would quote, ask for a friend. We call this series Asking for a Friend almost as a play on the phrase because on one hand, these are questions we often want to ask but might not feel comfortable asking. On the other hand, these are questions that a friend may actually ask us that we feel unprepared to answer. So this week, we're going to start off first week, we're going to take a look at the question of does science disprove religion? Please pray with me. Father, we ask for your guidance and your presence here in this room. Help us understand uh, what we can and help us have faith where understanding falls short. Again, pray that you guide this conversation in your son's name. Amen. So, Annika and I have been married about three and a half years now, and for the first three years of our marriage, we lived in the great state of New Jersey. And New Jersey actually was great, despite what people say, but it got pretty cold during the winters. In our first winter there, uh, Annika and I realized we have some very different and contrasting core beliefs about jackets and cold weather gear uh, when it comes to the freezing cold. So, if it's cold outside, uh, Annika will grab her biggest jacket, her hat, her scarf, her mittens, hand warmers, boots, you name it. If, it, if it's for cold weather, she's going to wear it. I, on the other hand, have a working theory about jackets that I'd actually like to take a quick minute and make a case for. Uh, yes, jackets. They are nice to have when you're outside for one minute walking from your house to your car. But then you get really hot in your car because the heat's blasting. And then you got to wear them inside and you're hot and you got to take them off and... If you take them off, you have to carry them around, and then you're going to leave them there. And so you've got to go back and get them. I actually have a, a similar theory about umbrellas. So my solution is to simply just don't wear a jacket. Because to me, that, that one minute or so of discomfort, it's worth avoiding the hours of annoyance and sweating with a jacket inside. I'm not going to freeze in that one minute. I personally think it's a very reasonable theory. Annika, however, disagrees and says, not only is it crazy to willingly freeze, but she also says I look ridiculous wearing a t-shirt when it's 15 degrees out. I actually think somewhere out there on the Snapchat servers, there's a, a video of me shoveling snow and boots, basketball shorts, and a t-shirt after a snowstorm. So anyways, this, this first winter in New Jersey, on one particular 12-degree morning, we are leaving for church, and after, to Annika's credit, being gently reminded to grab a jacket I walked out the door wearing basically what I am right now, pants and a golf shirt. We had just gotten married and I foolishly thought that, that this jacket decision, it was, this was about a lot more than the jacket. This, this was going to set a precedent for all future cold days. This was setting a precedent for my, my own autonomy and my future comfort. And ultimately, this, this boiled down to my ability to make any decision whatsoever. This was an issue of control. And I decided this was my day to make a stand. And I was indeed freezing cold. I did indeed look like a moron. And I also learned quickly that I had chosen a really foolish hill to die on. That's my best advice to all you soon-to-be-marrieds or just-got-marrieds out there. You have to die on the right hills. And don't get me wrong, there are some hills worth dying on, but you don't have to die on every hill that you see. And as I thought about this tension between science and religion, I I couldn't help but think of my jacket story. Because many times in this dialogue between science and religion, Christians have chosen some pretty silly hills to die on without giving much consideration to other points of view. And hear me, I'm not not proposing we just get on board with whatever the latest science says. There are hills worth dying on in that conversation, like, like the existence of God, authority of the Bible... There are hills worth dying on, but there are also a lot of less important hills not worth dying on. And we'll discuss some of these today. And many of these, these less important hills end up creating a little wall around the edge of Christianity. And it acts as a barrier to those who, who might be willing to come and die on that big central hill of the gospel with us. But they're tripped up by and can't move past these less important hills, which we've dug in on. So today we're going to look at some of these hills and and to try and come to an agreement on which ones are worth dying on as Christians. Because we only have about 20 or so minutes left, we're we're going to talk about one of these perceived flashpoints between science and religion, creation and evolution. But the principles from this conversation will be able to apply towards a lot of other hills you might encounter in that conversation between science and faith. So to start this conversation, we, we first have to take a quick glance at the options. What are the different positions on creation and evolution we can hold? I'm gonna go through four, or three of the most common perspectives. And in no way is this list exhaustive. There's a lot of crossover between them, but and I'll, and I'll only be able to spend a minute or two on each. But just know that my intent is really to just give a, a picture of the range of opinions, not to try and have you plug or categorize yourself into one of these. But on the front end, as we wrestle to understand about creation, there are, there are two things we need to be aware of, two influences that can kind of subtly factor into how we understand creation that we need, just need to be aware of and avoid. And the first one of those is, we can't be driven towards or away from a position simply because what public opinion says is, is regressive and progressive. We can't, can't be afraid of being thought of as ignorant. And then two, on the other hand, we can't be afraid to turn a stone over, we can't be afraid to investigate, um, and because of that, turn towards simplistic e- explanations. We can't just default towards what makes us think the least. So those are two things just to be aware of as we begin, and we're going to start with this first perspective. Uh, first one is young earth creationism. Young earth creationists are they're on the conservative end of that spectrum I described, and most of them will say the earth is about six to 10,000 years old. They'd argue that God created the, the world over the course of six 24-hour days, as we know them now. And the strength of this view is it's clarity. It's crystal clear. And in a quick, straightforward reading of Genesis 1 will point you in, in this direction. Uh, it doesn't leave much room for question, mystery, or unknown about the process or the interpretation. It, it can be summed up by the bumper sticker if you've seen it. It says, uh, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. The objection to this view, however, is that it uses a, a very literalistic reading of Genesis that doesn't at all deal with the poetic nature of this text. What do I mean, poetic nature of this text? Don't have time to get too deep into it, but, but there's a repetitive rhythm in the Genesis 1 creation narrative that almost sounds like verses in a song. It goes, and God said, let there be blank. And there was evening and there was morning, the blank day. Every day you see this, so six times over. And again, there's much more I could say about this. But the structure of Genesis 1, it has these poetic components that suggest there's more than just a historical narrative here. There's more going on. Second objection is that uh, younger creationism, it doesn't create much, of, much room for a dialogue with modern science. You pretty much have to de- deny uh, the legitimacy of the fossil record, deny the geological record. There's not a lot of room for discussion there. And the third, and what I would consider the biggest issue um, of this perspective, is when you start to compare the two creation narratives from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Some of you already may know this, but there are two creation narratives um, at the beginning of the Bible. One in Genesis 1, which is what we read earlier, where we have the creation by the days. And the Genesis 2 is a a different telling of the creation narrative. Adam and Eve appear in that one. But again, two creation narratives, and each of them have something to say. But the issue is that there are some differences in these. For instance, uh, creation in Genesis 1 begins with the earth covered in water. You can see that in uh, Genesis 1, verse 2. Genesis 2, however, uh, creation begins with the earth as a dry wilderness. You can see that in Genesis 2, verse 5. And some people get really worked up about these inconsistencies in the two creation narratives. And I really don't think you need to. I'm showing my hand here a little bit, but these differences are only an issue if you're viewing Genesis 1 and 2 from this young earth creationism perspective. Uh, you're viewing it from that lens where, where the words are treated pretty much like security camera footage. just very literal. What you read is what you get, and that's all there is to it. And again, it's only an issue if you're coming at these two narratives from that approach. Because think about it. We, we don't apply this same lens to uh, parables that Jesus tells, like Matthew 13 where Jesus is he's telling the parable of the mustard seed he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. And people will read that, and I've seen this, and they'll read that and will say, that's not true. The mustard seed is actually not the smallest seed. An orchid has a smaller seed than a mustard Also, there are are gardens with bigger plants in them than mustard trees, so uh, Jesus is wrong. And to that I say, "Ah, really? It's a parable. Jesus is teaching a cosmological truth. A truth, but a cosmological truth. He's not giving us gardening tips. He's pointing to a very true, abstract truth. And so we need to focus in on that truth and not get tied up arguing about the sizes of seeds or debating how maybe if we planted this seed in this certain type of soil, got it this amount of sun, and fertilized it this way, maybe it actually could be end up being the largest plant in the garden. Again, we don't have to die on those hills. So, that was the first perspective young earth creationism. Second perspective is old earth creationism. And in response to young earth creationism, old earth creationism, they'll point to Psalm 90 verse 4 and 2 Peter 3 8. Uh, to to kind of explain their view. It's called the day-age view. And those two verses I just mentioned, they talk about how a day to the Lord is is like a thousand years for us. A thousand years is like a day to the Lord. Both of those say those in kind of a different way. But but that summarizes their view. Again, it's called the day-age view. And it claims that each day in Genesis 1 is representative of some kind of age. An old earth creationist they side with modern science on the age of the earth because of that. Again, they have the, the day-age view. They can get on board with modern science on the age of the earth. Where they differ, though, is that they believe God himself operates with supernatural power in moments of creation. So God is doing each creation by hand rather than using a mechanism like, like evolution. So the strength of this view is that it's more cooperative with the geological record. Again, because it affirms science's theories on the age of the earth, they can operate within that. Uh, kind of billions of years framework the objection to this view though is that uh, old earth creationists they kind of catch heat from both sides because young earth creationists think that they're not reading Genesis faithfully enough by not affirming the 24-hour day view yet more dedicated proponents of modern science they'll criticize how yeah you acknowledge the age of the earth but you deny evolution as the tool so you're still kind of backwards so again, they're, they're kind of taking heat on both sides They're walking the middle a little bit. And then this third perspective is called theistic evolution. And many advocates of theistic evolution, they, they'll point to Genesis 1 verse 24, which reads, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind. And they'll really key on that, that beginning phrase there, let the land produce living creatures. Because the idea that the land, like God sets in motion for the land to produce, they would argue that sets, uh, it makes room for evolution within that framework. So those who, who hold to this theistic evolution uh, view, they, they accept science's claims about both the age of the earth and evolution as the mechanism of creation. Their view on the days of creation is not, not the 24-hour day view, it's not the day-age view, it's called the literary framework view. And it views the days as literary devices, not 24-hour days or even ages. It's a literary framework for you. And they'll say that the word day in Genesis 1, it's being used there um, in the same way we use it when we'll say back in the day. Kind of not referring to a specific range of dates or even periods or ages, but it's referring to kind of like a, a generic general past. So, theistic evolutionists, they'll, they'll believe in evolution as the mechanism or tool with which God created humanity, and they believe that all processes of creation were initiated and guided by God. For instance, the Big Bang could have been as simple as God snapping his finger. God initiated everything, but unlike, unlike the older, young earth creationists, sorry, old earth creationists, he might not have had his hand at every phase of the game. So the strength of this view is that it fully acknowledges the poetic nature of the text by focusing on these literary devices. And it also affirms much of modern science and is is affirmed by a lot of modern science. The objection to this view, though, is that it places a burden on the reader to decide, well, what's taken literally and what is a literary device? A lot of people feel like this is kind of like a Pandora's box once you open it. But most of the time this is obvious, like the mustard seed example I gave. But it's not always. Genesis 1 and 2 is an area where it's kind of blurry. This line between literal and figurative is kind of blurry. And when I was a college student, I waded pretty deep into this question. And I would always ask or wonder, you know, if Genesis is figurative, what's to say that the Gospels or crucifixion, resurrection, aren't just kind of like figurative, feel-good type stuff? And to that... Again, don't have a ton of time to get into it, but there, there are a lot of literary clues in the Gospels. You can see it in the introduction to the Gospel of Luke um, as an example, which, which make it pretty clear that what is being described or what's, what follows is a collection of eyewitness testimony. If you want to know more about this, I'd recommend the book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham. So those are the three positions, and let me say this very clearly. There are faithful Christians around the globe that hold to each one of these positions. When we get ourselves into trouble is when we say, to be a faithful Christian, you have to believe blank on creation. That's how we end up with a bunch of anti-science religious folks and a bunch of anti-religion science folks. All I'm trying to convince people of this morning is that you don't have to pick one of these hills to die on. By all means, investigate, research, try to sort it out, take a position. But you can be a faithful Christian and not die on one of those hills. You don't have to base your entire faith around your view on Genesis 1. Because all these positions leave questions. There there isn't a single position on this you can hold on creation that won't sometimes leave you asking, yeah, but what about this? Like, for instance, the the, the theistic evolution. What do we make of Adam and Eve? Things get a little complicated if they're kind of lumped into the figurative piece as well. So again, there's always going to be questions on the table of what about this? And that's part of the wonder and mystery of this world. We can be okay with that. But there are some hills worth dying on in this creation argument. And we're going to talk about two of those with the rest of our time. And the two of those we'll talk about is that God is the primary actor in the creation of the world. And that the account described in Genesis tells us the truth of God's love for humanity. So I'm saying those are the two hills worth dying on, that God's the primary actor in creation, and that the account in Genesis tells us the truth of God's love for humanity. So first, God is creator, and we'll we'll let that one play out a little bit. Let's say you decide to believe that there is no God, that the world exists on its own without any guiding force outside of itself. You do that, you're going to encounter a couple even greater mysteries that are harder to reconcile. and The first is the simple fact that we even exist—that there is something, rather than nothing. Scientists believe that they they can trace the origins of the Big Bang to a tiny singularity. They can go back in time on the, kind of the creation explanation all the way back to this tiny singularity, which appeared and then began flying apart. And that's the Big Bang. The problem, though, is that our science can't look back before that tiny singularity, before the Big Bang. How did that singularity get there? Where did it come from? What made it? You can keep going backwards, but I, you can keep going back. I don't see how you get around the fact that at some point, something came out of nothing. I, I don't see how I can get around that. And the problem is that nature isn't supposed to allow that to happen. There has to be a force to make the force. And then you, you can keep going back and back, but the only real explanation I see left on the table is that at some point, some supernatural force Began the process And the, the second issue though Is that our existence Somewhat related Our existence It rests on a, a knife edge Of improbability there, So there are laws That govern the behavior Of matter and energy Like the force of gravity Or the speed of light And these laws They're, they're in the forms of equations And these equations Have constants in them And you, you can You can't derive the value Of what those constants are Like you can't figure out Why they are what they are You just have to measure What they are So you can measure force in the constant for gravity, but you can't figure out why it is what it is. You just measure what it is, and it is what it is. And it turns out that if gravity is slightly weaker than it is, like if the constant value is a little bit lower, then after the Big Bang, the universe would be expanding too quickly. So if gravity is weaker, gravity wouldn't be slowing the Big Bang enough. There wouldn't be enough gravitational pull. So the universe would expand too quickly for life, Planets, human beings to exist. What we would end up with is an, a rapidly expanding, lifeless, empty universe. However, if that constant of gravity was a little higher, if gravity was a little stronger, then the Big Bang probably would have been followed by a big crunch. So from this, there are our three possible explanations about this constant of gravity being perfect that I've talked about. Like it, this, The constant of gravity in, in our world is perfect. For life as we know it so what are the explanations of the first one maybe one day we'll discover that there's a reason these constants are the values that they are we'll be able to derive why these are what they are but again it's hard to think of a situation where that'll happen can't even really give an example and in two maybe the multiverse hypothesis is right and in this hypothesis claims that we are one of an infinite number of other universes And each universe has these different values for those constants. It's kind of like a dial that's set. Every universe is slightly different with those constant values. And we happen to be in the one that turned out right. The one where the dials were perfectly set. Lucky us, right? And this is a reasonable theory, somewhat popular theory. But if you're going to subscribe to it, you have to be okay with the fact that we'll never be able to observe those other parallel universes. And... To believe that, that that's kind of a leap of faith in its own right third possibility is that the values of our constants are intentional they were set with purpose by a creator god and to me this is the most likely answer so we just touched on that first hill worth dying on that god is the creator now lastly we look to the claim that genesis tells us the truth of god's love for humanity the creation story in Genesis is true, but that truth goes much deeper than simply how things happened. This truth is, is more about the why we were created than it is the how. So there's, there's this Babylonian creation story. We just talked about the Babylonians in our Daniel series. One, one of their creation stories is called the Atrahasis, And it, it explains how the Babylonian gods got together one day and they're like, man, we are tired of having to work, provide for ourselves, all this strenuous labor. So what they decide what they're going to do is kill a, a lesser god, kind of a nobody god named Geshtu. And they po- poured his blood out on the dirt after they killed him. And from this bloody dirt, they made humans. And these humans were made to be slaves to the gods and to do all the slavery that the gods didn't want to do. So in this story, humans are made for the purpose of being slaves to the gods. So you read that and you, you, then you contrast it with the story of what we read of creation in Genesis verses. Chapter 1, verse 26 through 27. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So here God makes humans as his ultimate act of creation. Not only are we not servants or slaves, but we are we are invited to co-create with God, to co-rule. So when given this choice to make humans slaves or free, God chose free. He gave humans power. We were not made to lighten God's load or to be God's punching bag. We we're made to be loved. He made us because he wants a relationship with us, like a parent to a child. Parents in the room. When you decided to have kids, it was because you wanted to bring another person into the world to love and raise and to be in a relationship with. Hopefully, not so you could have a dishwasher or a lawnmower, though I'm sure that's nice too. God says we are made in his image, the image of God. This means that every human has the signature of the divine. Rich people, poor people, male, female, Democrat, Republican, independent, black, brown, white, people you hate, people you love, all of them bear the same signature of God. This is an amazing claim. And Look around the room. The image of God is sitting there next to you, in front of you, behind you. We can't miss out on this because we're too focused on whether or not the days in Genesis were 24 hours or ages or literary devices. So I said the Genesis creation story was more about the why than it is the how. So why were we created to be children of God and co-creators and caretakers of paradise? And while our world is beautiful, I I don't have to tell you that it's not quite paradise. Poverty, racism, genocide, brokenness of all kinds take place as as we look past the image of God in one another. We've taken God's command to rule over the world as caretakers and we've twisted it. To rule over one another God's creation has turned against itself and against the Creator and the result we see around us is a world covered by a shadow a darkness cast over the earth God saw this darkness and rather than leaving us to our own fate he chose to overcome that darkness with light God came to earth in Jesus Christ the light of the world and live the life we are meant to live in God's perfect creation. He was arrested and sentenced to death by the very ones he came to save, and he carried his cross to die on a hill just outside of Jerusalem. Luke tells us that when they came to the place that is the skull, there they crucified him. Our brokenness should have kept us separated from God forever, but God looked at his children. He looked at you, he looked at me, and he said, I will die on that hill. So they're on a hill called the skull, which is a symbol of death. The light of the world was left in the darkness to die. Three days later, we see that darkness did not prevail. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Light has burst through the darkness. Life has conquered death. And through Christ, we too can claim this victory. Thanks be to God.